Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. Hey, I want to personally invite you to our first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's a conference at the Outcomes Rocket and the IU Center for Health Innovation and Implementation Sciences has teamed up on. We're going to put together silo-crushing practices just like we do here on the podcast, except it's going to be live. With inspiring keynotes and panelists to set the tone, we're conducting a meeting where you could be part of drafting the blueprint for the future of healthcare. That's right. You could be a founding member of this group of talented industry and practitioner leaders. Join me and 200 other inspiring health leaders for the first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's an event that you're not going to want to miss. And since there's only 200 tickets available, you're going to want to act soon. So how do you learn more? Just go to outcomesrocket.health/conference. For more details on how to attend, that's outcomesrocket.health conference, and you'll be able to get all the info that you need on this amazing healthcare thinkathon. That's outcomesrocket.health conference. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. I welcome you to go to outcomesrocket.health slash reviews, where you could rate and review today's podcast because we have an outstanding guest for you today. His name is Dr. Justin Barad. He is an orthopedic surgeon and founder and CEO at OsoVR. They're doing some pretty amazing things. His passion is medical technology. He's always been fascinated with ways that software and tech could be applied to help people. And as a pediatric ortho surgeon, he's had an incredible way of just tackling some of the most challenging musculoskeletal issues facing our world's children. And he's got some technology to pave the way to do it as well. So I want to open up the microphone to Dr. Barrett, Justin, and have him round out that introduction. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Saul. It's a really awesome to be here. Your show is fantastic. And thanks for the very kind introduction. Absolutely. Well, you're doing some pretty cool things, Justin, and I'm glad you're able to carve out some time in your busy schedule. I always like to go to the root and wanted to ask you, why did you decide to get into medicine to begin with? Oh, wow. I mean, if you really go back, there was a computer game called Life and Death that did get me initially interested in, in medicine. Ironically, it was, it was sort of like a surgical simulation game. It was very primitive. Uh, I was really excited to be a doctor. And this was, I don't know, an elementary school, probably like sixth grade. And then I, I went to a hospital once with my cousin who was a surgeon and I, I got very freaked out and decided I did not want to do that. And uh, <laughs> ultimately, I, I took that the other direction. I decided I want to become a video game developer. So wow. I've been a uh, coding my entire life. And I worked at Activision while I was in high school. I have a game credit with them, which I was very excited about. And as I was finishing up high school, kind of medicine came back into my life a little bit. Family member started becoming ill, was in and out of the hospital a lot. And she's fine now, but it just made me realize that kind of what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to have an impact. And, and maybe I saw a lot of challenges that she was facing that the healthcare system wasn't necessarily equipped to deal with. And I thought to myself, I wondered if there was a way to use software and technology to help solve medical problems. So in college, I, I studied bioengineering at UC Berkeley with the goal of kind of being an engineer inventor type and in inventing technology. So as I was nearing college graduation, uh, I was interviewing for a bunch of jobs, but you know, nothing seemed quite right. It was like, you know, you're going to be kind of on the conveyor belt and helping increase efficiency of medical device production. So a gastroenterologist who happened to be my mentor, Dr. Henry Lin, I sat down with him and, you know, he saw that I was kind of not very happy. And he's like, well, 
if you could do anything, what do you want to be doing? And I said, I want to be inventing technology that helps people with medical issues. And he said, well, in order to invent something, you need to know what the problem is. And in the medical world, the best way to find out what the problems are is to be on the front line as a physician. And so at first I said, absolutely not. I don't want to spend that much, <laughs> that much time in training. But uh, you know, eventually he convinced me. So I spent a year in his lab uh, doing research and uh, getting all the prerequisite classes. And then uh, I got into UCLA for medical school. And then I ended up graduating first in my class. And then I stayed there to do orthopedic nice. surgery. Very cool. Very cool. So it's just been this ebb and flow between medicine and programming, video games, kind of back and forth. And now you're in this sweet spot where you're combining both of your passions and interests. Yeah, well, I, I think we all have serpentine life and career journeys. And when it kind of comes together and those Venn diagrams intersect, it, it can be a really special moment to know that everything you did sort of might have a purpose or a meaning. So it was during my training where I was experiencing what I thought was the most critical problem I've ever seen in medicine, and that's how we train our surgeons. And I was seeing every day how it just was no longer kind of working at the level we needed it to. And I saw a lot of patients being put at risk uh, while people were basically practicing on them instead of knowing what to do ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And I was still very involved with gaming on the side. I'd make mods for games and experiment with new technology. And one thing I was very passionate about very early was virtual reality when it had this sort of renaissance after a brief attempt in the 90s and the failed Virtual Boy, which I still think is a fantastic system. I love it. And so I got involved with VR very early and I was able to hack together an Oculus DK1, which was the original Kickstarter release with uh, this discontinued motion controller for your hands. And what that allowed you to do was get your hands into the VR experience, which was really hard to do back then and, and wasn't really an option. And the second I saw that, I knew that I had found the solution for this problem. And initially, I was like, wow, I can't wait for someone to use this to solve this problem. And then I had this kind of slow realization. I was like, wait a second, I have this background in gaming. Maybe that person is me. So that's kind of the, the origin story of Oso VR. And, you know, I started working on it uh, on the side and building out a prototype. And then eventually met my co-founder who had quit uh, professional gaming to pursue serious VR. And uh, in October 2016, we both went full time with the Endeavor. Wow. That's awesome, man. And listeners, you could hear the passion in, in Justin's voice. And and uh, if you go to osovr.com, that's O-S-S-O-V as in Victor R.com, you're going to see what they're up to. You'll find the link of that in the show notes as well, as well as the other things that we're going to touch on today. But super interesting, capturing the essence of virtual reality in helping train both surgeons and also companies sales reps in, in these procedures. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think, Justin, should be a hot topic on every health leader's agenda? Well, I think training should be at the forefront of, of everybody's uh, agenda, as you say. Um, it is, we're in the midst of a training crisis, and I think very few people realize this. When you just look at some of the numbers, it's, it's very concerning. So to understand the surgical training process, you know, what you're expected to do as a surgeon is you go to college, is about four years typically, then med school, which is another four years, that's eight. And then you have about five to seven years of residency. So then you're looking at 13 or 15 on top of that. And then typically another one to two years of fellowship. So a massive investment of time and money. Long road. Mm -hmm. And a study came out in 2017 looking at the ability of graduating surgeons to operate independently. So you would expect at the end of all that someone should be able to do the job they were trained to do. And as of 2017, for the most common procedures, 
30% of graduating surgeons were unable to operate independently. That's so, a big number. Yeah. And did it, did it talk about why? Yeah, th- there are a lot of factors going on. Um, it's a phenomenon we're calling, sort of generally calling the training gap. And it's really pretty simple math at the base of it in that the number of procedures we need to learn is always getting larger. Just think about it. There's new technology, new approaches, new techniques, constantly new things that you need to learn. And in general, newer techniques like minimally invasive techniques, navigation technologies, patient-specific devices, robotic surgery. These are generally more complex and harder to learn than traditional open surgery. And compounding this problem is the time we have to train. So it's actually becoming much less. A few years ago, there were uh, what were called work hour restrictions imposed on residents. And I remember kind of, when that happened. Yeah, they yeah. capped it at 80 hours or something. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hilarious because people view us as, as very weak for only being able to work 80 hours a week. But I, <laughs> it's still a, quite a large number. But when you look at the difference between how many hours people were hands-on with patients before and how many now, that actually factors into about a year of training time. So it did have a big impact, even though it's, it's the right thing to do because people were getting in car accidents on the way home post-call. It was really a terrible situation. Yeah. And then um, technology, in a way, is, is further uh, affecting the issue because electronic medical record systems now take up a lot of our time. And so basically, the, the people who are training us want nothing to do with these systems. So it's typically up to the residents and fellows to be entering all the data and coding the yep. patient encounters. Mm-hmm. And research has shown that up to 50% of our time in the hospital can be spent on a computer, on electronic medical record systems, and not in front of patients. So that's another big factor. It is, yeah. That's so bad. And I don't know what the answer to that is, Justin, to be able to decrease the amount of time that's spent on those things. I have a friend that started a a software company, and it basically is designed to make EMR easier and automate repetitive uh, inputs. And we need more more stuff like that. But anyway, to get back on on track here, um, definitely a big problem. And so that also takes away from training hours. Exactly. And then uh, I guess the final factor is sort of a a shift in kind of the culture of what residents can or are expected to do. And some of this is sort of a societal thing where we as a society are now more aware of residents and surgical trainees and very specifically say we would not like them touching us, which is understandable, but who are they going to touch and practice on? And also focus on sort of efficiency and productivity of the operating room and also liability issues. So, you know, when you're a surgeon and this patient is trusting you to get the very best care, it's hard to let someone you know is less skilled than you actually do parts of the procedure. And so it's a bit of an ethical conundrum. So all of this combines to this dynamic, which is very worrisome, which is uh, further worsened by the fact that uh, there's data showing that by 2050, we're going to be about 50,000 surgeons short because we have an aging population. We have a relatively decreasing workforce uh, because we have this sort of like uh, aging demographic that's flipping uh, in terms of the pyramid. And uh, it's leading to what's going to be a very challenging dynamic where this population needs a disproportionate amount of procedures that kind of this relatively limited younger population cannot provide, which isn't helped at all by the fact that the vast majority of residency spots in the U.S. are subsidized by Medicare. And so the number of residents we can train is also fixed by the government. So a lot of challenges and really very little being done about it at the moment. And so, you know, I view a lot of what my job is, uh, not only in terms of providing a solution, but sounding the alarm and educating people about the issue, both in the medical and outside the medical world. Because I think we all as a society want people who are highly trained to be taking care of us in our greatest times of need. 
Yeah, that's you bring up some really great points, uh, highlighted some big issues that we have in the system. And let's zoom into Oso VR. And, and Justin, can you share a time or an example of how your organization has improved outcomes? Yeah, you know, we I didn't leave full time surgical practice to kind of make a buck. I really want to solve this problem. And so very early, I wanted us to make sure that what we were developing actually worked and wasn't just a cool marketing gimmick. So we did a, a small pilot study at UCLA and we took a group of medical students and half of them were assigned to VR training and then half were assigned to traditional training, which was like a lecture textbook and uh, some illustrations and things like that. Then we had them all individually go through and do, we call it sawbones, which people tell me sounds hilarious, but it, it's kind of like the closest you can get to actually operating on a patient. We had them all do a sawbones procedure and a blinded observer graded their performance. And what we found at the end of that was that the VR-trained individuals performed nearly double as well as the non-VR individuals. So we, we have a lot more studies coming out uh, of UCLA that we're designing right now. And ultimately, it's very challenging, but we want to tie use of our platform with how patients do in terms of complication rate, length of OR, readmission, and, and things like that. Because ultimately, you really want to show that this is directly affecting patients and their outcomes. But there is no doubt that the level of skill transfer you get just from a few minutes in VR is, is exponential uh, compared to traditional means. So why would you want to, you know, some of the surgeries that I participate in were like 12 to 15 hours long. Why would you spend an entire day when you can learn exponentially more by doing yourself in just a few minutes? as opposed to just standing around and watching, which is what you do for the vast majority of these like five to 10 years of your uh, postgraduate training. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And 50% better is a big number. And just thinking through all the things that could happen by way of variation. There's variation in the way that things are taught. There could be a more standardized and streamlined way to spread the training as well, right? You touched on you know, one of the key issues in the surgical world in that Everyone just does whatever they feel is best for the patient and there's zero standardization. And so if there's a way that we can all agree as sort of a professional group that here is the way that we want people to do this procedure, it unlocks a lot of potential in that now you can actually measure how well that is working and make changes on a mass scale as opposed to just letting everyone do their own thing and hope that it works out well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, you know what I think would be really interesting too, Justin, if, if they took this product and you went to the board of, you know, orthopedic surgeons and, and they incorporated it as part of becoming board certified. Oh, that is exactly what we're attempting to do. <laughs> uh, is that right? Because yeah. <laughs> I mean, that right there is, I think, cementing it into the process. Have they been pretty receptive of it? Everyone I show this to is, you know, knows that this is something that is not a nice to have, but a need to have, and that we're at sort of a crossroads and we really need to make investment in this area in order to solve a lot of the problems we've been discussing. And that's why we were able to, you know, assemble an advisory board of just uh, unbelievable people like the former chair of surgery at Stanford and uh, some presidents of very large professional societies. So we're really working, you know, not only to solve the problem on a technological level, but also in sort of a regulatory and professional society and standard setting to agree on, you know, what do we want people to learn by the end of their residency so that you kind of know what you're getting at the end of this machine. To give you an example of why that's not happening right now, residency is really an apprenticeship training model. So you're just, you're kind of following people around and just seeing whatever they walks in the door that day. 
So what happens is that just based on statistics, you get a wildly variable experience. For example, one of my co-residents, he was doing a hand surgery rotation. And one of the most common procedures we do is a distal radius fracture. It's a wrist fracture amidst trauma. So it only happens when someone trips or has a skateboard or bicycle accident. And in his two months that he was doing this rotation where he's supposed to see a lot of these, he actually saw zero because they just never came in. Then he moved on to a different rotation and he just was never going to get that experience because of random chance. Interesting. Yeah, that's so true with the trauma, right? If you focus on, on those particular things, how can you augment it? And this is a good solution. Yeah. So in Brian George's paper from 2017, which I mentioned earlier about residents not being ready to practice, he sees this as a vicious cycle. So what's happening is that surgeons are graduating. They're not yet able to practice on their own. So they're still learning. And so now they're in practice with residents of their own. They're expected to teach. Mm. But instead of teaching residents, they're focusing on their own learning. And then the cycle continues and worsens. And so he thinks that one of the main ways to break this and create what's called a virtuous cycle is through simulation, which you've been seeing in aviation for decades be very effective in terms of you have a standardized curriculum that everybody needs to know so that their skill level is kind of of a proficiency where they can perform the most common procedures safely and also have a launch pad to when they do get in front of patients, they're starting from a more advanced level so they can get more out of their rotations. So in a worst case scenario, like my co-resident, at least he would have been proficient in a simulator. So we knew that it was safe for him to do that surgery out in the field as opposed to starting from zero, which is what's happening right now. Totally. Yep. And I'm just like envisioning it being part of a, you know, hey, if you're trying to get a fellowship here, well, can you show us your OSO uh, score? Oh my God. You, you bring up one of the most incredible issues that, I mean, I think would blow anybody's mind if they ever just looked into this. So I, <laughs> I mean, I would ask the audience like how much assessment of actual technical or surgical skill happens when someone is admitted into residency. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. What is it? It's zero. So uh, <laughs> typically, it's just, you know, if you have good grades, and you seem like a nice yeah. person, you wouldn't mind being up with at three in the morning when neither of you have slept, you're in. And then at that point, it's almost impossible to get kicked out of the system. Like you could be a terrible surgeon, but unless you're actively murdering people, which I've seen, it's just you're going to get all the way through. And so there's some people who aren't going to be Olympic athletes or some people that can't be pilots, much like surgeons, but these people just, just get through and then, you know, they're taking care of patients and, and should they be or, and also, you know, this is an issue just down the road. Like what if you just kind of let yourself go and you're just not really trying anymore? Don't we want our surgeons to be of a certain quality level as a society? And there's just no one checking that or looking into that right now. And you just can't. Right just coast through. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy to me, actually. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's really interesting, Justin. And I think the direction that you guys are headed is definitely one that will potentially create a, a standard, a certification, an index, so to speak. Exactly. I, I think people right now, you know, when I'm going to see a physician or one of my family members, they're really going on two things like availability and affability. And, mm-hmm. and the least important, you know, people say is ability, but When you think about it, there's no way to really know that. Like, what are you basing that off of? It's like, well, his patients did well. It's like, well, actually, most people do do well, right? The complication rate between like a a really poor surgeon and a a really good surgeon is a few percentage points. So it's going to be hard for you to differentiate that. You're not going to get that out of Yelp reviews or anything like that. So I think it is a little unfair to patients that they're not able to get some high level kind of indication of truly how, how deft is this surgeon? How shaky are his hands, right? Aren't these things that people want to know? Oh, totally. Yeah. So sounds like things are going well. Justin, can you share with the listeners a time when you made a mistake 
or had a setback and what you learned from that? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> so, so many. I would say you really want to, hiring I think is, is the biggest challenge when you're starting a new company and a new endeavor. And the tendency is to want to just build the team, build the empire. And just when someone comes along, maybe you're having trouble attracting technical talent and you just need somebody. But uh, I would caution people that I think team trumps talent really. And, and there is like a fit and you want to, in the early days, it's just so crazy that you need people that you're going to be able to be honest with, work well, you know, practice radical honesty, as they say, and, and just stay focused with ruthless prioritization. And the concept of like too many cooks in the kitchen or just throwing more people at it doesn't necessarily lead to more productivity or a better solution. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, stay lean, iterate quickly. And, and really just, I would say that the biggest word for us has been focus. So you're doing something no one has ever done before. You can go in any direction you want. And so I think the tendency is to try and go in every direction, sort of spray and pay or spaghetti against the wall and, and just see what sticks. And there is some of that that has to happen. But if you have focus and a vision and a really stay mission driven and so like have a North Star, like what is everybody working towards? I think that has gotten us through, I would say, 99% of our challenges. Whenever we have an issue with the technology, the customer, just internally with our team, we always remind ourselves why we're doing this and what we're trying to do. And we're able to find a solution and get through it. And just, you know, being very careful that everyone we bring on feels that same way. That's a great share. And, uh, and listeners, it's all about the team you build and the focus in your why and the direction. And Justin and his team definitely have a clear North Star and uh, they're, they're doing some really interesting things. So as far as I understand it, Justin, you guys are, are looking beyond orthopedics. You're looking into cardiac procedures now, right? Yeah, we're, we're exploring uh, the robotics and interventional cardiology space as well. And we're really focused on areas where the complexity and the technology have gotten to the point where they exceed our ability to learn it in a reasonable period of time. So, you know, a lot of robotic technologies or some of these new structural heart procedures you may have to perform 50 to 100 times before you could do it safely. And with the tools we have available today, that's mainly happening on patients. And so in something like the world of cardiology, I mean, that's potentially a fatal event. But oftentimes what happens is a surgeon or a proceduralist will try a new technology, which is amazing for patients and they want and are typically higher value and have a bad experience very early on. And they'll feel burned by that. And uh, in the industry, they call it a one and done phenomenon. And so what happens is the surgeon feels that the device is unsafe and not realize that they were just undertrained, and they'll stick with older technology, which is probably not as good for patients. And so what we're trying to do, you know, one of our mission statement is increasing patient outcomes through the adoption of higher value medical devices and techniques, and, and also democratizing access to modern surgical education around the world, which is something you can do with our technology. I think that last piece is really interesting, too, because there's countries around the world that don't get the opportunities. A lot of uh, people that want medical training come to the U.S. because there's a lot of great training here. And this is a way that people could actually get the training without even coming. Exactly. It's uh, VR has the power of what we say teleportation and capturing expertise <laughs> nice. and distributing it. And so even, you know, you have people from from other, you know, very well regarded countries coming here to learn how we do things. But there are areas of the world like where I go on medical missions where they don't have the opportunity to travel anywhere or really get much training where they are. And things that are very easily treated here, like a, a lot of trauma that young people experience 
over there often goes untreated or mistreated. And it's a huge burden for their economy because now you've taken a very young, productive member of the economy and he's no longer able to work because of sometimes a very minor injury. So this technology has, has the potential for really massive global impact in a way that I'm really excited to see. And we're really committed to that global mission. That's awesome, Justin. Very inspiring what you guys are doing. And it's more than just here at home. What would you say one of your proudest medical leadership moments that you've had to date? <laughs> wow. I still think just running a team um, and taking care of patients is something that I'm immensely proud of. And I still think is the most special opportunity. And it's a real privilege to have someone in their time of need depend on you. And, and not only that, but you be able to deliver for them and to see people who are in horrific accidents walk again or born with certain deformities and suddenly, you know, their legs are straight and, and they're walking around. And uh, I remember there, there was one patient when I was a resident and uh, he, clubfoot is a very common congenital uh, deformity that is present at birth. And it's treatable with just some casting and a very minor procedure um, and usually doesn't cause much issues throughout life. But if it's untreated, you're basically walking on your ankles wow. and it's, it's very, very deforming and debilitating. So the 16-year-old from uh, uh, Liberia came to uh, Shriners Hospital I was working at. And we were able to do this, what's called a salvage surgery, where we kind of cut out a bunch of bones from his ankle and fuse it together. And it's not ideal, but you don't have a lot of options at that age. Um, he was coming back in for a follow-up and I was walking by him and I heard him say, I'm like, he's like, dad, dad, that's the guy who made it so I could walk again. And uh, I cry like every time I think about that. And it, it was a moment like that, that I knew that, you know, I was doing something that I really wanted to dedicate my life to. Yeah, that's powerful, Justin. You know, just being able to touch patients in that way is a really powerful thing. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great story. Justin, let's pretend you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in medicine it's the 101 course with Dr. Justin Barad. And so we've got four questions, lightning round style, followed by a book and a podcast that you recommend to the listeners. Ready? Very ready. <laughs> All right. What's the best way to improve health outcomes? I think the best way to improve health outcomes is through training. I might be a little biased. And also <laughs> assessment. So we have one part of the puzzle which needs a lot of improvement, but we have none of the other. We need to know how are our practitioners doing technically so we can know what can they, what should they and shouldn't be doing and give patients access to this data as well. And I think that's really what's going to take us to the next level in terms of outcome. And it's just a data set nobody's looking at right now. Awesome. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? I think I see this all the time, but find problems and not solutions. Taking a solution from the tech world or an idea you have and trying to find an application within medicine is almost always going to lead to failure. It really takes a deep, deep understanding of a problem and the various stakeholders involved, the regulatory and reimbursement pathways, the path to commercialization, the competitive landscape, the level of capital required. All of these things are very important, but they all stem from a problem and not necessarily the solution that you're thinking of. And so I really, really, really encourage people within medicine to just record problems and not necessarily ideas for like cool widgets. And if you're outside of medicine, I really encourage you to get inside somehow. So shadow a surgeon, uh, follow someone around in clinic, volunteer, just get in there, get on the front lines. That's what I did and it worked wonders. And every corner you're going to face some sort of challenge, some sort of pitfall. And the answer is not going to come from some new technological development. It's going to come from your understanding of the problem and how to approach that problem from a slightly different angle or 
how to uh, approach a different stakeholder that you have deep understanding of. So practice need-based innovation, find problems, avoid the solution rabbit hole. That's a great call out, Justin. How do you avoid eroding your impact despite all the constant change? I think just stay involved and build your network. It's really easy um, if you're within medicine to just be siloed and just do what you do, clock in and clock out. And the speed at which the world is moving now, you're going to miss <laughs> everything fly by you. And suddenly what you do might not really be as effective or relevant anymore. And so it's really important to stay connected to the world and whether that's technology or policy or somehow do something outside of the day-to-day -day of medicine. And similarly, if you're interested in the medical world, like I said, stay involved and, and keep one foot in there so you can understand what are the shifting dynamics, what are the politics, what are patients saying. It's just going to make all of the difference and make you be able to look one to two steps ahead. I always think about cardiothoracic surgery and how they were approached with interventional technologies and catheters. And they felt that they didn't need it because what they did was fine. But what they didn't understand is that their patients needed it. And cardiologists jumped at the opportunity. And now cardiothoracic surgery is, is kind of a shadow of its former self. And you know, cardiology is, is a booming field. And so it's stories like that that remind me that it's really important to stay connected to your patients in the world of technology. Beautiful. What would you say one focus area that every health organization needs to keep in mind? I would say to have more of a focus on fostering innovation. And, and I, I don't mean like starting an innovation group, but truly from soup to nuts, training your workforce and your physicians to understand innovation and how to interface with the world of startups and large companies and, and outside of medicine and, and, and not just function within your silo once again. And I say this because I feel that innovation is really a lifelong discipline and it's not something you can learn in a boot camp or, you know, a few month kind of seminar. And I, I think there really just needs to be a culture of innovation and it should be encouraged and there should be policies that reflect that in order for an institution to really uh, stay ahead of the curve and, and, you know, make sure that it's kind of like this was born here. We did this. We contributed to this world because truly a rising tide lifts all boats. And you're seeing this in the tech world uh, all the time. Uh, it was really I moderated a panel with the CMO of Samsung. And, you know, the medical director from Qualcomm was sitting right next to him. And, and they both said that our companies sometimes don't work together, but we need our technologies to interface with each other in order for us both to be successful. So I, I feel like right now this message hasn't really gotten across the medical world. And you could certainly see it in the way that the EMR situation has uh, manifested itself with Absolutely. the lack of interoperability. But the key is that if everything works together, you get synergy and exponential increase in outcomes. And if everyone is just doing their own thing, you're, you're getting just additive kind of like baby steps. And, and that's not enough anymore with the rate of change in terms of the needs of the population and the exploding healthcare costs. That's a great call out, Justin. And what book, what podcast would you recommend to the listeners? In terms of books, uh, I would recommend Doctors, The Biography of Medicine. If you are interested in medicine and startups in any way, you will find this to be a very inspiring book because it is the tale of physicians who made huge leaps for our profession and for our society in terms of the healthcare they receive, but also the stories behind them. Who were they as people and why did they take these huge leaps or dedicate these lives to what everyone else thought was crazy, like uh, Andreas Vesalius, who at the time, Galen had determined that we had discovered all there is to know about medicine and there was nothing else to know. And people believed him and no one ever questioned this for a thousand years. And then Vesalius from Padova came out and he realized that Galen had never even 
dissected a human cadaver before. He'd only done animals. And that was very taboo at the time. So in secret, he started dissecting human cadavers and actually realized that there were many, many inaccuracies and basically overturned a thousand years of medical knowledge by him kind of being the original medical disruptor or rebel. And there are many, many more stories in the book. And I find it very inspiring because these people who are like the heroes of our profession, they're just people and they have the same kind of problems that we do. And it's very relatable and, and gives you the idea that you do have the potential to solve these problems. Any one of us can do it. It just takes you deciding that I'm going to do this. I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me that I can or can't attempt to solve this problem. Love it. What a great recommendation. And what podcast would you recommend? In terms of podcasts, uh, I'm going to go non-medical here. There's this podcast called Song Exploder. I think it's just totally fascinating. It, it goes over hit songs and basically breaks out each individual track and you can see how it all interfaces together. And it's really interesting to see how these individual tunes that sound totally weird in isolation when together create a really incredible song. Kind of reminds me of medicine and surgery a little bit. And I also love music. So I, I highly recommend that one. It's, it's really cool and different. Yeah. You know what? That's on my uh, subscribe list as well, Justin and listeners. It is a very interesting podcast. Definitely check it out. Don't worry about writing anything down. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash Barad. That's Justin's last name, B-A-R-A-D. You're going to find all of our show notes as well as links to also Oso VR and uh, the things that we've discussed, the book, the podcast, all these things. Justin, this has been incredibly fun. All good things have to end as well. So uh, here, before we conclude, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get a hold of you or get in touch with you. I would just encourage everybody listening to this. Just, I always say it's okay to quit, but never give up. I think, uh, the world is so exciting and you don't know what's in store and the next step in your pathway. And so I always say, just have a bias for action. Just constantly move forward. You never know when a random stint in game development is suddenly going to become relevant later on or if the path you're taking is the right one. Just don't worry about that. Just keep walking down it. That's a great message. And what would you say the best place if somebody's interested in Oso or just collaborating with you guys, how to get in touch? Yeah, you can email me, justin at osovr.com, or you can check out our website. Uh, there's a contact form there, www.osovr.com, where we have a big initiative this year to partner with healthcare institutions all over the world and also medical device manufacturers to help get their technology out there. Beautiful. Justin, this has been a ton of fun. I definitely know that the ideas you shared are going to help people improve outcomes, and I thank you for that and hope to uh, stay in touch. Likewise. Uh, it was a total pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast. If you want the show notes, inspiration, transcripts, and everything that we talked about on this episode, just go to outcomesrocket.health. And again, don't forget to check out the amazing Healthcare Thinkathon, where you can get together to form the blueprint for the future of healthcare. You can find more information on that and how to get involved in our theme, which is implementation is innovation. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash conference. That's outcomesrocket.health slash conference. Be one of the 200 that will participate. Looking forward to seeing you there.